am here with Rafa, who's currently a researcher at the Summer Protocols and is the founder of Folklore, a community of curation, also a good friend. Rafa, I'm so excited to have you on the pod. I'm excited to be here. You know, it's been, how long has it been since we first met? I think it's been, has it been two years already? I think, I think it's, it might yeah, be I think it's probably a couple of years, which is wild. Yeah, you met me, you met me before uh before a lot of things had happened yes uh, which is quite exciting it's been an eventful two years um i cannot wait to talk about a few spicy takes today i think you've thought really deeply about um media as an on media and on-chain media and also protocols and how all those things interact with one another but before we do that maybe you can give a little bit of background on you and how you felt on the crypto uh rabbit hole and what you've been doing for the last couple of years. Absolutely. Uh, I, I tell this story often. Um, the, the beginning or the origin story is always goes back to a summer that I had at my uncle's hardware store. Uh, he had this company where he used to sell doors and other type of like housing um, items. And uh, my parents had gotten me a job there for the summer and it was in college. And uh, the job was to count screws all summer, and I had to sit down in the basement. I had this little stool and had a, a, like a bunch of screws, and I needed to put those screws into baggies of like 100. And about a month in, I, I honestly can't believe it took me a month. I asked myself, like, why am I not weighing these? Like, why am I still counting these by hand? And it's kind of, you know, I laugh in retrospect, but... I feel like this is a lot of how the world works. Like you do a thing for a very long time. Then you ask yourself, like you kind of wake up and you ask why, why am I doing this? And so uh, I go to my uncle and I ask him, Hey, can I use a weight? And he's like, no, we're paying you. We're paying you to count screws. And I felt like that was such a good metaphor for all the work that we do that everybody does across any specific company. And so I sat back and I was like, man, like this is so inefficient. Uh, I should just use a weight, like, I don't know, buy screws and packets of a hundred. This doesn't make any sense. And uh, that kind of led me down a rabbit hole of how organizations, uh, coordinate and how humans get together and provide value. Fast forward to, uh, 2019, I had already spent a couple time, a couple of years reading about crypto and always thinking every year that I was late. Um, since like 2015, I was like, ah, it's too late. 2016, ah, it's too late to get into this. I remember thinking about getting a job at Coinbase and saying, ah, oh, this company is already like already done. And so finally in 2019, when I was looking at alternative models for coordination, because I was working in human resources, and I was like very dissatisfied with kind of how employee relations and uh, reward and incentive structures worked. Um, I came across uh, online communities, which I had already been a part of, but again, took many years to wake up and say, wait, there might be something here. And so that online communities happened to coincide with a lot of conversation about DAOs um, and how Ethereum uh, was producing new tools for on-chain treasury management and coordination and yeah, the rest is history. Uh, you know, four years later, still here. Yeah, so you spent a couple, I was going to say a couple of years, that is not true, like a, a year maybe at Mirror, and then also started Folklore, which I'm very excited to talk about. Um, maybe you can give a little bit of context on the thought behind Folklore and mm -hmm. what it is. Absolutely. So as part of my insatiable curiosity for how humans coordinate. I'd spend the better part of the last decade um, reading articles and saving some hyperlinks. Um, I think this started back in 2016 or so. Uh, so the so I'd save these like links um, that didn't go anywhere. Uh, I just like save them and as you would do, you would put them in a file and then never read them. Uh, some of them I read. Um, and when about... So in August of last year, uh, I had gone out the night before and usually the morning, the next morning after uh, my brain is a bit more quiet, 
um, some interesting ideas, not all good ones, most of them bad, but some interesting ideas happen. And I woke up and I said, you know, this doesn't make any sense. I'm the one like saving all these links. People are asking me for these links. I should just, I don't know, start a paid telegram group. Uh, and I was working at mirror at the time and I was like, oh, this will be great because it will help me also test out the functionality of mirror. We had just launched like writing NFTs that summer. And I was like, I'm just going to test out how this functionality works and see what we can build. And so that morning, uh, it, I woke up at like 8.30 or 9 a.m., um, a bit cloudy. And I wrote the article that started Folklore. I was like, hey, I'm going to start this Telegram group for people who are interested in the type of stuff that I read. Um, just feel free to buy the writing NFT and this will be season one. Like, let's do it. Uh, ship it, um, as you would say. And so I started the token group. I saw, ended up selling out all 150 uh, memberships. I wanted to keep it capped. Uh, and uh, that's how Folklore began, which is simply a drip. It was uh, this idea that I wanted to get an article a day, which is the membership that I wanted to pay for, but the service didn't really exist for the topics that I was interested in or for the intersection of, of reading that I was interested in. As a result of that, Folklore over the last it's been nine months now, uh, has consistently had a curated article every one to two days. And then the membership, uh, the, the payments for membership are reinvested into essays uh, commissioned by Folklore. Bear in mind, we have not published a single commissioned essay yet, <laughs> uh, but we do expect the first one to come out at the end of the month, which we're very excited about. Yeah, I love I loved watching Folklore Evolve. Um, and it is an incredibly active Telegram chat, which is so cool to see. But also in the context of creating media and also in your time at Mirror, and I think your research across the space more broadly, you are, I think, one of the deepest thinkers on what on-chain media actually looks like and what it can look like um, and what some of you know the challenges are right now. So can you talk through a little bit of how you're thinking about on-chain media and where media lives and, and what ownership looks like in the context of folklore creating content and essays and things? Yeah. So uh, one of the things that I, the, the main reason why I had joined Mirror initially was uh, because I really, I really believe in, in their mission of being able to put context on digital assets and making that context a digital asset as well. I, when you have practical experience, like building these NFTs, something quite magical kind of happens, which is you, you start realizing the power of this portability and composability. You realize the fact that this tokenization process uh, provides a sort of physicality to, to a JPEG, which it doesn't actually exist. I like to think about blockchain as uh, almost like a, pro a protocol of time where it embeds a timestamp, an actual time into the digital assets, which means downstream from that, you can actually trade, you can know who has the object. Uh, it provides a materiality, a weight, a mass to assets which are not don't exist in meat space or in real life. And so there's there's lots of downstream consequences, which I don't really even know what they are, but intuitively by creating NFTs and interacting with them, using them as memberships, using them as uh, ways to save information, as archiving, you start to get this, this sensory reaction that you're actually dealing with something which is not just a PDF or a Google document, not just a file. And uh, that's that's really exciting. And, and I'm kind of very interested to see where we go. It's not every day that we have, yeah, ownership um, in a digitized form. It's quite new. Yeah. And it's interesting because um, I know some of your research is centered around, you know, if you use the analogy of like the blockchain almost creates a physicality, how you instantiate that physical object is actually a very interesting question. Um, because there are tons of protocols around the creation of this type of on-chain, like crypto media, as you call it. Um, and so I'm curious how you think about the decision 
of how to actually bring that thing to life on chain? I think the the first, so let's take folklore for, for an example. In in the morning that I was writing this article, uh, the decision was very easy. I was like, oh, I'm just going to make this writing NFT on Ethereum on Mirror. Uh, the reason was because I wanted to publish a post on Mirror. It was super cheap when gas was high back nine months ago. Gas was, I don't know, I'm main it ridiculous. And gas on L2s was relatively very cheap and very low. And so I I defaulted to Ethereum and to, to Mirror as a protocol. Now, I think this kind of points to an interesting reflection, which is you do have to choose a chain. Like, am I going to do this on Polygon? Am I going to do this on Bitcoin soon? I, I would imagine their functionality is expanding. On Ethereum mainnet, am I going to do it on a layer two, Arbitrum, Optimism? So you have a chain decision that you need to make, which defines an ecosystem of products and protocols that you can that you can participate in. And at a second level to that, then you have to make a decision on the protocol itself. So I could have, for example, created a membership on Zora or on Manifold or on ThirdWeb. Um, that's kind of like a secondary decision. But then you have a third layer, which is you also have a, to make a decision to which standard you're actually going to execute on. So each chain will likely have different standards. So you have an ERC-721, ERC-1155, and ERC-20. Like I could have done a membership that was just an ERC-20 on, uh, you know, on, on Polygon, for example. And it's kind of interesting because even then you need another layer of technical knowledge. What does that standard even include? Uh, what makes it special? I had chosen an ERCLM55 because I was thinking about creating a collection of memberships over the long term uh, and because that was what Mirror defaulted to. And it's kind of interesting now looking back, like, would I do that again? I'm not 100% sure. I'm thinking about season two and I'm thinking I probably want an ERC721 because I want like an index number. Uh, and I don't know if I want it to be a separate collection. I probably going to end up using optimism as an L2. I like their vibe and vibes are important when choosing a protocol. I mean, after all, you're kind of committing your community to the philosophy of the protocols that you're actually working with. Um, and not just that, you're committing your community uh, to whatever fee structure that they have in place and whatever fee structure that they'll have in the future. So in a way, your your community becomes liquidity or I would call it like content liquidity for a media protocol. And in the same way that in DeFi, an LP needs to decide where they're going to deploy their capital for the best um, return, creators are having to choose standards and protocols uh, to where they're going to invest their community attention and infrastructure so that the community has the best possible foundation for their growth. Yeah, I think this idea of content as liquidity is a really, really important one when we think about the context of what on-chain media looks like, what it means to have protocols where all of the content is sort of um, aggregating. And mm -hmm. one thing that I want to talk about in this context <clears throat> that I know you've thought deeply about is this idea that like, in theory, I think we often don't think about content liquidity because technically standards like ERC 1155 and 721. Mm -hmm. And for people who aren't familiar, like those are both NFT standards. They're just a little bit different. Um, but in theory, those are like interoperable and you can switch between protocols and it doesn't really matter. Um, but in practice, that is not always true. Can you dive yeah. a little bit into why? Because I think often, like in the context in my head, something like um, LPing, right? Providing liquidity mm -hmm. on Uniswap. Um, that's very clear because it's Uniswap as a protocol. And technically, the tokens that you're providing um, liquidity with are interoperable, but like you're locking your tokens into the protocol. And so it becomes yeah. obvious. I think with NFTs, yeah. it's a little weirder because it's like, 
technically I could mint on one platform and sell on OpenSea. And in a lot of cases that yeah. is true. But yeah, what where does interoperability play into this idea of content liquidity on protocols? Yeah. I okay, so let's take a step back. We have on-chain media, which we can think about content deployed. It can be on IPFS, it can be on Rweave, uh, it can be on Live Peer, um, it can be on Zora, right? Or Manifold. These are like this is like content which is on-chain. As a subset of that, you have tokenized media which is content which is tied to a specific token ID and contract. So this is, for example, an NFT project. Uh, the, the media, the on-chain media may be hosted on IPFS or it might be rendered in the same contract that you have. And that contract actually has tokens, so they have like IDs attached to them. So in they're, they're actually like things like uh, uh, foods that you have sitting on the table. Now, in that tokenized media, that, that tokenized media is can be a custom contract. So I can deploy a contract to Ethereum and say this is RAF's contract. And I can use an ERC721 standard, which means my wallet, Rainbow, or MetaMask can quote unquote read and know how to interact with that specific contract. So you have different types of like signatures and stuff like that. It, it doesn't need to be a custom contract. So you, so right now we have protocols which provide different types of, uh, utilities. So gas optimization. So I don't need to create a custom contract and pay a bunch of gas to like deploy this contract. I can use like a factory, um, on chain that optimizes so that when I do an ERC721, I low, low, I use, uh, low gas, but more importantly, it's audited. Right. I know that their contract is airtight, doesn't have errors and so on and so forth. Or at least we, we trust that they do. Right. They're not hackable. That factory is coupled to the protocol that they have. So whatever protocol you use, you create a factory, you create your contract. Your contract now is inheriting all the wonderful opportunity and features that the protocol is offering to you. A lot of that is just a standard. So. You know, you have like a supply of tokens and you have a current owner and there's a function to transfer the ownership from one, you know, uh, address to another one. What's interesting is that that token standard, so ERC721, is is very limited on purpose. So the standard is as, as small as possible to enable interoperability between any interface that wants to connect with an ERC721 or 1155, whatever these types of tokens are. And within that limited standard, it gives flexibility to the service providers to create additional types of contracts. One common function that exists is the mint function. Uh, something that I thought was true, but I didn't know, um, now I know, is that the mint function is actually not within the standard. So there is no standard mint function. What that means is that the protocol that you choose gives you the specific mint function that they have designed. Could be gas optimized, could enable airdropping, like... Uh, it could have burn mechanics, like that might be a separate function. You might have a series of different functions that enhance the interaction with the, the specific NFT or token that you're actually creating. This is great. This is fantastic for creators because it allows you to experiment. It allows you to expand your functionality. But it's kind of interesting because one thing that we should not assume is that all the interfaces need to build out their own interoperability with the custom functions from the Mint. So if you have a, an ERC721 can't become an ERC1155, right? They're different contract types or different factories. In the same way, a contract that you deployed on Zora can't become a contract that's hosted on Manifold or ThirdWeb. Or a contract that you deploy on Mirror can become a contract with Zora. And if you have an interface that integrated the Mint function from, let's say, Zora, that doesn't mean that that Mint function actually works with a contract from Mirror or a contract from ThirdWeb. And 
taking it one step further, this is why Mint.Fund is such an insane project because they're in, they're creating interoperability with the Mint button for every single type of protocol that exists and every single type of project that exists. That is mm-hmm. not that, you know, that, that is respect to the, respect the game. That's it. That's hard. Um, now, corollary to that, as I continue on this like protocol rant instead of platform rant, I guess, is that the, your distribution as a creator is predetermined by the interfaces that support your protocol choice. So if you choose to create a custom contract and create a custom mint function, the distribution of your NFT, not necessarily the viewability of it, but how many people click the mint button is going to be restricted to the interfaces that support that mint function. Does that make sense? Yes. And this is, so I think this is the core piece that makes the content as liquidity and creators as liquidity providers all make sense. Because just to summarize, there are standards that are common denominators. For example, ERC721, the very like basic and first core NFT standard does define certain things. And those things are showing up in interfaces across all of these different platforms where we can define a platform as maybe like a front end and a protocol is like the back end that actually defines things on chain. The challenge Mm -hmm. is that any additional functionality is not by default interoperable. And in most cases, it actually is not, which means that platforms are actually surfacing different functionality. And while that seems like, oh, well, at least the NFT is there, which is fair, it's also things like minting and burning of NFTs, which are core functions that are not interoperable across platforms because there is no standard for these things yeah. unless you have something like mint.fun where they come yeah. up with a standard for the specific function. Exactly. And and something that's even, let's take it one step further, even the metadata, like hosted on IPFS, right? The metadata that share, shows where the media is, if it's not like on, or even like if it's a, if it's a read from on-chain contract, that is also not standardized. The metadata standard is optional, even in the ERC-721 definition. So, you know, I say all this because you go back and say, okay, as a creator, uh, what am I going to do for season two? And I do, which is weird, creators, I, I don't know why creators need to like be this technically oriented. We need some middleware, essentially, to deal with this. But I have to make a decision now in terms of what protocols I want to use. And that decision like drives power to me because it's a, it's a distribution engine. So the protocol partnerships to interfaces are a distribution engine for me individually as a creator for folklore. And my content provides power to the protocol because the protocol says, Hey, look at this. All the popular uh, creators, which have hungry, insatiable audiences, their content is hosted on my protocol. So you need to make sure that your engineering team builds out the interoperability for the additional functions um, that my protocol provides. And that's so there's there's a dual uh, conversation here, the dual benefit I'm getting from the protocol's distribution. I'm giving power to the protocol to be able to uh, ask for more partnerships and increase their distribution uh, scope. Um, and that's, you know, that's super cool. That's like a a type of symbiotic relationship, at least for now. Um, because then we can think about what comes next. Well, my content is actually locked within that protocol. So I'm getting a symbiotic relationship kind of, but once I deploy my content to that protocol, if that protocol, I don't know, um, has any issues, gets hacked. I can't just say, I can't just move my content to another protocol. I have to recreate it from scratch. I have to redeploy a new contract with a new protocol. So if that protocol dies, I don't know, gets sued, goes bankrupt. Um, I don't know, they rug their users for whatever reason. Then the, the rebuilding of that distribution process 
is not as simple as, um, you know, just upload your picture from Instagram to Twitter, right? Like you have to build a following again in the same way. If you recreate your content um, from Zora to Manifold, you might have to do an airdrop to your current users. Like all this is expensive. Like there's an investment process. Uh, and one of the reasons why mad respect for the Degods team who were, who transitioned from like, I, I believe Solana to Polygon um, mad respect because that transition process from one chain to another, very hard. And for in the future, creators will at some point have to be recreating content from one protocol to another. That migration will be as hard as, uh, well, hopefully not as hard. We'll hopefully we'll have additional tools and interoperability, et cetera, but might be as hard as moving your audience from Facebook to Instagram or Instagram to Twitter or from one social media platform to another. Totally. Yeah. And I want to dive into this like lock in piece and what that means for creators and also more broadly for the space. But I think just two other aspects that come to mind for me that like really demonstrate the lock in point is one, the thing around content liquidity. And I guess if you use Uniswap as an example, like you mentioned earlier, um, the entire reason that people think that Uniswap can turn on fees is because they have all of the liquidity. And similarly, that that is even if we're not thinking about hacks, but if protocols introduce really high fees where creators are like, I can't sustain this. Um, that is a problem. And that ends up being yeah. something that like you, you're kind of stuck in this yeah. weird, yeah. you know, web two type paradigm. And then the second thing that comes to mind is um, I just recorded an episode on ERC 6551, which is yeah. this idea yeah. that, you know, yeah. NFTs can own other assets. And so like, you could imagine a world in which I use my folklore NFT to build out an entire identity for myself and then and we get rugged and my, and even if I still own that asset, um, I then have to like, think about, okay, how am I going to port over this entire yeah. identity? So <clears throat> I think as we build context around these NFTs, it's no longer just going to be like, oh, it's an easy copy paste into another chain or protocol. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would take a step back. Like you first, you still own the NFT, like the contract yes. is still yours, right? Like, um, I think what's interesting is that um, when the, the like your if if for whatever reason interfaces stop supporting a specific protocol structure, which would make sense, you know, if we fast forward ten to twenty years, it totally makes sense that we might have different protocols available. There might be some backwards compatibility, but your NFT may not be up to par with the latest standards. So, what does that transition process look like? So, protocol lock. I think we should we should distinguish this from it, it doesn't mean that uh, that they control your audience. No, you still control your audience. You still have like your address, like that NFT still holds your assets. You still like control the NFT and the NFT contract. But it's a question of like, where do you hit limitations and interoperability that are a consequence of your protocol choice? and a consequence of your contract in a point in time, right? I think those are important things to ask about that locking is you're getting, it's the immutability of the contract, which is the feature is also the limitation in terms of what this space might look like in 20, 30 years. We have to ask the question, what does it look like to upgrade a contract? What does it look like to ensure that we have backwards compatibilities to standards. And if we're not doing backward compatibility to certain standards or new functions, then how are we going to address that? Uh, you, you also mentioned a, 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 moment, a moment ago about monetization. So it, protocols need some sort of monetization because we want sustainability. We want protocols to be audited. We want their functionality to increase. We want their composability and interoperability to be as rich as we possibly can. Where it gets kind of interesting is if I choose a, a content protocol uh, to deploy my token assets and I do that consistently for 10 years, 
so that my entire community infrastructure is built on a specific protocol. If, if there's only, if number one, they could raise fees and I don't have much of an option. My entire infrastructure is built on there. Migration, very problematic. It's going to feel like an enterprise, like on-prem cloud solution migration to serverless. Like, oof, we really going to do this? Like a lot of money. Uh, this is a lot of time. This is very technically complex to maintain the, the community experience in this migration. So that happens. Something more nuanced that I that I like is going back to this, con- this concept of content liquidity. If it's not just me, if 90% of creators or there is a certain market share of creators and communities are building on a specific protocol, then that protocol has a significant amount of control, not just increasing fees for creators, but also determining which interfaces will be successful. So if a protocol says, um, if an interface does not, for whatever reason, maybe they have certain legal terms or uh, whatever, I don't know, like the, the interface wants to make a decision to not support this protocol for whatever reason it is, uh, then suddenly you have this question that as a creator, um, you don't have access to that interface, but as an interface, you don't have access to a creator base. And this is eerily similar to the discussion on royalties and the, the listing exclusions that has happened with NFTs on whether they're, uh, they can be sold on this you know, market because you respect royalties or this market, that's a type of protocol like, you know, we're not going to support this protocol. Our interface doesn't support this one. This protocol doesn't support this other protocol. And there's kind of this like emerging theme that yes, protocols do have control over who they inter- over over who they support and interfaces have control over what protocols they choose to connect with. Yeah, and it feels like the the play, the interplay here is like if protocols have liquidity, they have the power over interfaces. So as an example, if 90% of creators are minting on Zora and Zora says, mm, we're going to make the metadata available to only three platforms, they are giving power to those three platforms. And I'm using platform and interface um, interchangeably here, but whatever it is, it's the front end basically. So in that case, the protocol has control over what interfaces win. On the flip side, if the interfaces have distribution, then the interfaces at over, if they have high amounts of distribution and 90% of people are using, you know, OpenSea to discover NFTs, then the inter, the protocols, the OpenSea decides to say, Hey, yeah, we're going to support, you know, Zora, that actually has a huge, that's a lot of leverage over protocols. So yeah. does that capture the the dynamic that you're calling out? Uh, potentially. I mean, honestly, like this is just, this is still like an emerging theme. And I think there's additional layers of research that I need to, I personally need to get clarity on. But this is like, I think the the crux of it is what does happen in these like interactions. Like, I think because we have decentralized like data so, you know, you can't really block IPFS, like the contracts are public code. Um, maybe in a future where we have privacy preserving like technology, then it's possible that protocols could say, you know, this interface is not allowed to de-encrypt our contracts or this protocol, it, this interface is allowed to decrypt our contracts. Not 100% sure. Um, so I'm not sure if the interface would... Uh, I don't know if there's a way to prevent an interface from interacting with a protocol just yet, but if an interface has their own protocol, then another, like a an infrastructure protocol, let, let's say um, I, I make an NFT, NFT protocol called um, Rafa's Contracts, you know, .xyz. And an interface company, which is a block explorer, you know, Insta chain, um, the they have a protocol that like reads my contracts or does some sort of transformation. Hypothetically, I suspect that I that I could like control 
you know, Rafa's contracts could do something to prevent that. It's possible. I'm not even 100% sure. But at the very least, you can make it very difficult for them. I, I suspect that would be the case. Um, and I'm curious how this will play out, like what type of power dynamics are going to exist between content create uh, contract creators and contract readers. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's definitely going to be uh, some sort of interesting power dynamic. Yeah, which is funny because I think often when we think about things in a very simplistic manner, we're like, <clears throat> OK, the best protocols will win because that's where creator liquidity will exist and the best interfaces or platforms will win because that's where the best like distribution will be. And those will exist in isolation and we will just end up with each of the best. Um, but that's becoming increasingly clear that they're actually quite interdependent and there are going to be a lot of dynamics that make it so that it's not so cut and dry. It's not um, so cut and dry. That was my realization like over the past like couple of weeks, which I suddenly realized like, wait, the MIM function isn't standardized. Wait, the standard is quite limited. Wait, protocols can stack fees. Like, oh, if I'm like interact, like obviously, you know, if I'm minting a protocol contract through an interface and I'm probably going to get taxed twice, one at the interface level to support the interface and the user experience and one at the protocol level for the infrastructure payment. And that makes sense. But then you start extrapolating and you say, oh, what happens when there's one monolithic protocol? What like what type of competition can we actually nurture uh, to be able to drive fee prices down and not up? What does it look like to transfer content because of new functionality that emerges? Do I need to redeploy content? And that's, I think, where this entire thought process came. And again, grounding it on folklore, like folklore needs to make decisions as to what protocols they use for membership and who we're going to rely on for for memberships. And especially, I think this problem gets increasingly more important as we think about longer term content. So when I'm thinking about lifetime memberships, for example, or the NFT is a composable and dynamic digital asset, and you start building additional complexity into this, then these questions become even more pertinent. Um, And yes, creating a custom contract is fine. Forking another protocol is fine. So it's still like supported in some way, but it's still the, the question about making sure that you're following standards making sure that your custom contract is supported by the interfaces where your community lives. Those are all important considerations that you need to keep top of mind that I need to keep top of mind um, as I grow folklore. Yeah. It's funny because I think there's a world in which my immediate sort of like open source decentralization maxi brain is like, Oh, well, of course what will end up happening is just that um, if protocols are going to have of course, there's a conversation about expansive versus extractive fees and stuff. But for the matter of this example, we'll just say that all fees are extractive, though I'm not sure that's totally true. Um, there's a world in which you go, okay, cool. I'm just going to fork those protocols and no worries. I'm never going to use these protocols that are creating, that have fees, but that are creating a lot of value. And I think when I take the long-term view, the reality there is just that you you need that level of competition. Like you almost do need an incentive for these protocols to continue innovating. And if you don't have that, I think there are a lot of questions about the longevity of this stuff, um, which is I think where that tricky dynamic comes in because you can't just fork it and create a version of it and be done with the assumption that this stuff is going to constantly change. And you really do need teams that are constantly keeping up and innovating with like yeah. the evolution of this. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, the market will kind of like manage itself. Like if a protocol becomes too extractive, like someone's going to fork it and that fork is going to be supported by the interfaces, which supported the original protocol anyways. Um, I think that's fine. I think in theory, that's right. Um, the And it's way more, you know, composable and portable than anything that we've had today. You can't really fork Facebook and just like have an interface that works, right? That That's not yeah. how it works. Um, but when you create these dependencies, um, even if you did create a, a fork of Facebook today, even if that was possible, 
Um, it doesn't mean that all the services that are interacting with Facebook and know Facebook as a trusted supplier uh, will automatically support you. So right. you have a lot of like partnership redevelopment and trust like redevelopment that you need to invest in. And that's, you know, that's social work that needs to get done. That's like, you know, peer to peer conversations. That's, you know, business development that, that needs to go through. So forking, yes, it exists. Easier, yes, by probably a magnitude. But we should we shouldn't be naive that this is just going to be like easy and that like our content is just like fine and it's purely portable and transportable. Um, we should kind of know what we're committing to. And at Folklore, when we're committing to publishing on Mirror, it's because we believe that Mirror is providing us the best user experience and it's going to be with us for the long haul in the same way that when... You know, I chose to deploy the mid-season pass on Zora. It's because, you know, I think Zora is great. And I think it's like the, the user experience that they're providing and the safety that they're providing for the protocol is something that I want my contracts to emulate. Yeah. Okay. Here's the other question and dynamic that comes to mind, which is, I think all of that makes sense. And when we think about the the interplay between interfaces and protocols, there is a world in which instead of dealing with all the like bullshit dynamics that we have unpacked a little bit, you decide, okay, I'm going to build my own vertical for folklore. I'm going to have custom, you know, contracts and a custom interface. And this is going to be my distribution so that I don't have to rely on anyone. I know it's dependable. What is the reasoning behind not doing something like that? I mean, honestly, it's just a lot of effort. Can you imagine <laughs> the amount of like time and technical like expertise that you would need to do this? I mean, maybe GPT-4, the five, um, 45, uh, will, you know, <laughs> solve for this, which it might. Uh, but I think that's also, I don't know. I think, I think there's going to be these type of like more luxury media verticals, um, as, uh, as Stephanie would say that have their own like, you know, complete vertical and complete control and complete like custom experience. Uh, I'm sure are there are artists today which are building something similar, and that's totally okay. I I personally, when I think of folklore, I want folklore to be within the network. I I want folklore to be alive within the different protocols which exist and different interfaces that exist. I actually don't want a monolithic vertical. I, what I want is uh, a purely, you know, on-chain type of infrastructure that uh, will stand the test of time and will survive for 100 or 200 years. Yeah. I also get the sense, and I would be curious if this resonates, but like, I think that when you build something like that, and, and I do think that there's value in building your own vertical distribution in particular, because distribution is such a weird problem that I think um, like quote unquote centralization and distribution is actually sometimes better. And centralization can just be the centralization of, you know, your assets into one specific protocol. But that aside, um, I do think that there's something interesting about like not siloing your community in the sense that, you know, if you want, if your community, if Folklore wanted to do a drop with MetaLabel being a, and another set of communities being able to have those assets also be interoperable with whatever you're doing feels really important. And I think when you start to get too verticalized at the protocol level, you do run into some challenges. It's the inevitable like uh, deviation from standards, right? Like, and I think this is not just this is not just like creating a vertical. This is also every protocol that we have today, which is building new feature sets. With every new feature set, you are deviating a tiny bit more from the standard. You might have the standard, but you're also adding additional feature sets on top of it. So over time, the amount of interfaces that fully compose with your protocol, whether it's yours or whichever one you use, there'll be like a deviation. The number of interfaces may decrease like for full composability, even if they increase because more interfaces are supporting like specific standards. And so this interplay between distribution, functionality, uh, and flexibility and 
your own ownership of the, the content and the contracts that you're using, uh, I think will be an interesting, uh, there's probably a trilemma there somewhere that, you know, we can tease out maybe after the podcast. Yes. Or at the end of the summer after you. Yeah. Or at the end of the summer. Yeah. After, you, after you've gone deep into some of the stuff. Um, okay. As we wrap up, I'm curious, like, as you think about this and as you're doing research on it and really exploring what all of this means, what do you see as interesting or promising alternatives to what we have now and, or how some of this stuff might end up playing out? Yeah. I I think, I think there's three different, um, three different potential pathways that uh, over the past week have kind of emerged uh, as I have had conversations about this and, and as my own practical experience in folklore has gone. The first is, uh, you know, uh, during the summer protocols, we had a great lecture um, with two of the core researchers around the differences between standards and protocols. And uh, we were talking about the fact that standards are declarative statements and uh, and this is kind of what brought me into realizing like the limitations of standards and then the the flexibility of protocols in the context of those standards. So I think the first option is to actually expand the standard set. Maybe we should develop a standard for a mint button and for a burn button, right? And for other types of interactions. Obviously, we've barely scratched the surface as to what it means to interact with an NFT. So it's probably too early to commit to specific standards. But having an eye towards actually developing those standards, that's great. The slight downside of that is whichever protocol lobbies the hardest and has the largest voice is probably going to be quite influential in the standard that's decided. And the protocols which do not already follow that standard will have to update. And yes, your contracts, which you might have minted this year, may not be interoperable with many interfaces in the future. Okay, sure. Pros and cons. Um, this that That's the standard expansion. The second is we could start thinking about micro protocols. So I could start developing a factory that is my own protocol that's always updated to the recent standards. And maybe I create a set of contracts which reference each other uh, so that they always reference the latest standard. Um, so the ownership and the transfer and the supply. And so the ERC721 is maybe like a very purist type of standard. And then it's kind of like composable with all the other different functions. Not 100% sure how that would work. Not an engineer. Uh, I'm sure people will listen to this podcast and say that I said things wrong. Totally possible. But I do think it's, I do think maybe there's some protocol engineering that can take place such that you have guarantees um, for this type of like interoperability or composability. That's the second one. The third one, which I actually think is very interesting and, and possible, is this concept of like creator centric middleware. Maybe um, when I interact with an interface, that interface actually connects with this middleware that just swaps in and swaps out contracts. And so my audience doesn't even know what protocol they use. We just always use the lowest fee protocol that is composable with the interface. Hilarious. Commodities. <laughs> hilariously, yeah, protocols become commodities. The funniest thing about this, though, is that that middleware creator-centric like software tool that's actually what a platform is. So like, right. we're, we're just back to platforms, which is fine. I'm not saying that they're good. You know, centralization is, is awesome. That's another, that's another, <laughs> you know, if you're not choosing a protocol, if the interface is choosing a protocol and you're just swapping in and out protocols and you're actually, you're delegating, you know, that ownership and that decision to the protocol itself, to the, to the interface that you're working with, which is fine. You know, it's totally almost like awesome. a creator union of sorts. Like, I mean, if you imagine a world in which, you know, creators come together and they, they, of course, in my mind, I'm like, oh, that's going to be a DAO, obviously. And the creators are going to be able to delegate their votes to a little team of people who do the trade-offs. And there's an interesting world in which it actually starts to look more like a creator union, which would have a ton yeah. of power over protocols vying for their business, yeah. Um, yeah. which is a very, I mean, I mean this is, 
this is a in in a, you can ask the question like who actually controls the protocol like yeah. and that answer is not that necessarily clear like it might be a multisig or it might be a single wallet that has admin rights i mean depending on the size of the company and who has those keys like that's interesting i can see a future where the protocol users have a specific voice where they can veto information right now it's kind of interesting to ask who is actually in control of the protocol, the fees, the changes to it. Um, and in a lot of cases, we're still in the early days. It's like the core team, right? Um, but that doesn't necessarily, that might not be true in the future for all these different like media protocols. Totally. Yeah. And then of course you get into questions around like how much do creators need to know about these protocols to make informed decisions? How do you abstract away some of that, which I think is, is also going to be a really important part of this stuff. I mean, to be fair, like we've made lots of empty promises to creators, including, hey, we'll enforce your royalties. And then the market. We have. We have. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, look, it's all still shaken out. I think this is, this is one creator's perspective of like what's going on. And yeah, I'm excited to start this conversation. Like, let's talk about content liquidity. Let's talk about like what the power dynamics are between protocols and interfaces and between different protocols which rely on each other. Let's talk about how decisions are made and how fees are structured and whether they should be stacked or discounted and who is the creator paying or is the audience paying or the collector paying. I think these are all the conversations that we will have to have now that consumer Crypto is actually a thing. There are creators. We are building on crypto. Let's talk about the things that come next. Yes. Well, I'm very excited that you're doing this research. Rafa, where can people learn more about you and what you're thinking about and building and also folklore? Uh, so you can go to folklore.institute uh, and definitely join join the start the journey with us. We're on our way to creating a community AI uh, that supports our our curation, our work. If you want to hang out with me, feel free to get in contact with me on Twitter at Rafa the Builder, uh, or just uh, visit my website Rafael.fii. Uh, thanks so much, Chase. Love it. Thank you, Rafa. Mm-hmm.